Hi, welcome to podcast number 22 with help with Parkinson's. This is part two, dealing with the dangers for Parkinson's patients in the hospital. Dr. Subramanian from Hershey Medical Center is back for the second part, and I'm your host, Warren Butfinick. Welcome back, Dr. Sue. Thank you, Warren. So today we're going to get into a little more specifics of the problems that occur in the hospitals for Parkinson's patients. And uh, these are kind of rare, but it's still worth mentioning. Dr. Sue, could you explain to the, uh, the audience the, uh, the danger of having the Parkinson's med possibly being taken off for surgery and going cold turkey yes. for, for a day down to zero? Right. So um, the danger of uh, acute withdrawal of uh, Parkinson's medicine um, can be problematic, and it has to be done uh, with uh, caution. So historically, uh, when people were taking carbidopa, levodopa only, and no other medicines were around uh, several decades ago, um, there used to be this idea that you would give patients drug holidays. And uh, the idea of a drug holiday was to simply stop the Parkinson medicine for two to three weeks and give the body some time to rest. This was a major disaster because uh, many people actually died uh, because of withdrawing their medicines. And they went into a condition called neuroleptic malignant syndrome or NMS uh, for short. Neuroleptic malignant syndrome is a condition where your body's dopamine suddenly drops, especially in the brain. Dopamine levels abruptly drops um, from a pretty high level to zero. Now, This can be catastrophic, as I mentioned, and it can lead to death of patients. And neuroleptic malignant syndrome can be characterized by high fever, um, high blood pressure, heart rate going up, etc. Now, this NMS is extremely rare now, so rare that um, in the past 20 or 25 years, I've never seen it. Because in most cases, people don't go cold turkey on their Parkinson medicines. Secondly, uh, we usually support patients very carefully when they are coming off their Parkinson medicine. So, for example, if you were to, a Parkinson patient were to have a major stomach operation, uh, let's say, for example, appendicitis, and you had to be hospitalized, your appendix had to be removed, So if the surgeon had to cut open your abdomen to remove the appendix, well, typically for several days, you're not allowed to take medicines by mouth because your gut was opened up and has to heal. And during the healing process, you want to give the gut time to heal. And the best way to help it heal is not to put food in there so that it doesn't have to work hard. So what happens during that time? Uh, Typically, the neurologist is involved, but also the surgeon and the anesthesiologist and the post-operative, uh, post-operative uh, care people who are all caring for the patient would uh, carefully administer uh, fluids, IV fluids, monitor blood pressure carefully, also give pain medications to control things. And also, they would um, make sure that any signs of neuroleptic malignant syndrome is recognized early and intervened early. So if all those things are done and it's carefully monitored, um, 
enemas does not happen anymore. Now, in this context, it's also important to uh, talk about NMS that could happen without being taken off medicines. It could happen due to what we call drug interactions. And one of the medicines that we always worry about, and there's always a warning about this uh, when you go get this medicine from the pharmacy, is a group of medicines which are called the monoamino oxidase inhibitors, MAOB inhibitors. Uh, examples of that are selegiline or Deprinil, Rasagiline, or Azelect, and Safinamide, or Zadago. All three of these medicines are inhibitors of an enzyme in the brain that increases the amount of dopamine. However, because of its cross-reactivity, it can also increase the levels of other medicines, uh, other hormones in the body. Uh, for example, serotonin can go up, and you can also have increase in norepinephrine. Norepinephrine is involved in blood pressure control and serotonin is involved in depression. So you could have uh, drug interaction with other medicines that has given for anesthesia, for example, or you could have drug interaction with antidepressants that could create NMS, neuroleptic malignant syndrome, which is characterized by high blood pressure, high temperature, high heart rate, excessive perspiration, um, and flushing of the face, and so on and so forth. Uh, most doctors, especially emergency room doctors, are very attuned to this condition, and they'll recognize it fairly quickly. Uh, rarely it's missed. Uh, in all the years that I've been taking our Parkinson patients, I've never seen neuroleptic medical syndrome in a Parkinson patient, which is a good news that it's extremely rare. Uh, we use... Um, uh, rasagiline and selegiline, uh, azelect and deprinol quite quite often. We also use afinamide quite a bit now. Zadago is also used uh, quite a bit. And many patients taking these medicines are also taking antidepressants like Zoloft and Prozac and Velbutrin and uh, Lexapro. And in theory, these two medicines can interact and cause either neuroleptic malignant syndrome or another condition called serotonin syndrome, which looks very similar, although not as dangerous as the NMS. Um, but these are conditions that you need to be aware of and be aware that drug interaction can occur. And it's important that when a patient with Parkinson's disease is going into the hospital for either emergent surgery or elective surgery, um, the caregivers, the people with them, um, do inform the emergency room doctor as well as the anesthesiologist and perhaps the surgeon as well, all the medicines that you're on that helps them uh, prevent these type of complications or at least be vigilant, watchful, make sure that the blood pressure is not too high, temperature is not too high, and everything is taken care of. By the way, if you develop neuroleptic malignant syndrome, the treatment is exactly that, giving fluids, uh, cooling your body, controlling your blood pressure, making sure the heart rate is under check, et cetera. It's the exact treatment anyway. So um, early recognition is the important thing to prevent complications and death. So I hope um, that gives you uh, the audience an overview of what this rare condition uh, might look like and how it can be prevented. Good. How about uh, it's getting more and more common that people have deep brain stimulation what do, the, what do they have to do when they go into a hospital, let's say, for something they need an MRI for? 
what what do you have to be vigilant about that everybody understands? Right. So deep brain stimulation, DBS, involves implantation of electrodes into the brain. And these electrodes are connected to a uh, pulse generator, which is implanted under the skin in the front of the chest. This is a battery-operated device that sends electricity into the brain. As with any other electrical device, even household electrical appliances, um, this is vulnerable for a short circuit. What is exactly the short circuit? Short circuit means that um, an electrical circuit is incomplete. Uh, electricity goes in and comes out through another way. So, for example, when you uh, plug in uh, a light or a fan or whatever, whatever device you have in your house, uh, you know there's a positive and there's a negative, and there's also earth. There are three things that we use. Uh, and we use all three things in order to prevent electrical short circuit so that electricity is going via the cathode to the anode and it's doing all the things that correctly. And similarly, in the DBS also, the pulse generator is sending a series of electrical charges. Electrical charges go in through a wire and they go into the brain and whatever it does there, it has to do, and then it has to come out through a completion of circuit. Now, this completion of the circuit requires that the wires that go in and communicate with the rest of the body is in good shape. Now, the way we check that good shape or the good condition of the device is what's called an impedance check. Impedance is uh, basically um, the way to tell whether a circuit is intact or not. If the circuit is not intact or is poorly connected, then the impedance typically goes up. And a high impedance uh, indicates that uh, the device is not functioning really well and the circuit is malfunctioning. Now, if you have a malfunctioning circuit and it's a circuit that you're not using, and most people who have the DBS, they know they have a total of four contacts on each side, the traditional Medtronic device. Of course, the newer device has more contacts, uh, like, for example, the Boston Scientific has more contacts. Uh, But the traditional method is that you have four contacts. Well, we don't necessarily use all the four contacts. So what might happen in an individual who gets DBS is that occasionally you have an implant in which only two leads are working or maybe even three leads are working, but one is not working for whatever reason. During the implant, there was some error, there was a mistake, or there was a wire breakdown or something happened. Now, if that's the case and your impedance is high, then getting an MRI is problematic because when you have MRI done, high level of energy is applied to the brain. And in theory, if you have high level of energy being applied to your brain and you have a short circuit in your MRI, that can lead to problems, including causing unintentional injury at the site of the, where the DBS is located. So one of the things that the radiologist wants to do, and it's a good thing, it's a good practice, is right before the MRI is done, they want to make sure the DBS has got a check done to make sure all the impedances are correct. 
um, and that there is no risk for harm. So typically this involves um, a check done by a nurse, uh, occasionally a PA, sometimes a doctor, and this is typically done an hour before an MRI is being done. Of course, if it is an emergent MRI, uh, you're going to the, to the emergency room uh, for MRI, uh, sometimes this is not possible that there's a nurse or somebody trained to check impedance in the emergency room. So then the emergency room might choose to do a CT scan, a CT scan with contrast sometimes, which is called a CTA, CT angiogram, is sometimes used, especially if you're thinking about a stroke and somebody who has had a DBS, they may choose to do a CTA instead of doing an MRI, especially if there is the, the emergency room does not have the staffing to do a quick impedance check. Now, in most institutions where a lot of DBS being done, there's usually somebody on call, uh, sometimes even the manufacturer's uh, uh, agent or assistant uh, working with the manufacturing company that makes the DBS device may also be available to come and do a quick impedance check. But sometimes it's not possible when it's super urgent. Something is, has to be done within the next few minutes, then it may not be possible to do impedance check that quickly, in which case we might choose to do a CT or a CT angiogram. But again, the point is that if you have a device implanted, whether it's a Medtronic device or Boston Scientific or St. Jude's or whatever, uh, if the impedances are not working correctly and there is an impedance mismatch or the impedance is very high, indicated that the circuit is not complete, uh, then there is a small chance that when you have an MRI, the MRI could cause damage to the brain. And that damage to the brain could be irreversible. So the radiologist uh, typically wants that checked before the patient goes into the MRI. Now, one little uh, note of concern that uh, we should make everybody aware is that not all cases you need to have an MRI done. Uh, many times, MRI is not necessary uh, during an emergency. And then the doctor might say a CT is just fine or no imaging is needed. You know, checking the patient, doing a good neurological examination often gives us enough clues to know whether an MRI needs to be done or not, or a CT scan needs to be done or not. So uh, if the doctor, uh, the emergency room doctor, and the neurologist and neurosurgeon, they all determine that an MRI does not need to be done, well, that's well and good. You don't need to get it done. Uh, and so the message here is not that everybody should be worried whether they have a CT or an MRI done, but just be aware that if they want the impedance checked, uh, the reason for doing so is to make sure that there's no short, short circuit and that short circuit does not create problems. It's a good, good way to explain that. It's very, very complicated when you just read it yourself. It's much easier when you have somebody explain it to you. Right. So um, judging by being that you're in a hospital, am I safe to assume that a lot of problems that could occur are not life-threatening because you're, you already are in a hospital? And even if somebody makes an error, they could always fix it quickly? I think that's more or less true. Um, sometimes, although hopefully it's rare, uh, some of these complications uh, may not be recognized. So, for example, if people don't pay attention to the blood pressure, heart rate, 
and they're focused on something else. So, for example, you had major trauma and um, you're involved in a road traffic accident. You have a couple of broken bones uh, and you're being treated for the broken bones. For example, a major bone is broken, like the femur is broken. And they're focusing, the orthopedic surgeons are focusing on getting that taken care of. Uh, if they're not careful and they don't pay attention, uh, raise in body temperature, heart rate, and pulse uh, may be blamed on other things. They may not keep in mind that, oh, we just stopped all the Parkinson's medicine on this person, and this could be neuroleptic malignant syndrome. It could be missed. Although I think in most major hospitals, they would look at blood pressure very carefully. They would look at heart rate very carefully and temperature very carefully. These are things that are very carefully monitored in most uh, intensive care units. And if you had major trauma, you would be in an intensive care unit and you would be monitored very carefully. So it's unlikely that this would be missed. Having said that, you never know. Sometimes somebody might miss something, but it's important to keep these things in mind, uh, especially if you had Parkinson's and your medicines were completely stopped uh, because you you couldn't be because you're unconscious and you're intubated um, or somehow supported. And then in that case, you just have to be very carefully monitored for this. And people have to keep in mind that neuroleptic malignant syndrome could possibly occur in this setting. Right. And uh, when I was preparing for this podcast, even last week when we, we started it, I was a lot of the literature tells you to teach the staff what they need to know about Parkinson's. From listening to you and thinking it, thinking it through, it seems like that's, that's not practical. It's best to be an advocate. If something goes wrong, you could say to the, the doctor or the nurse, I think you should check this out because this is, he has Parkinson's and this, this may be if this, something went wrong. Instead of every little detail, making the nurse and doctor talk to you about every every dose of every drug, Is, does that make sense? I agree. I think especially if you are in a dire emergency, uh, this is not the time to go in and teach your caregivers about Parkinson's disease intricate details because they are focusing on the dire emergency, whatever it might be. Like you have a perforated stomach, or you have a heart attack, or you have a broken bone, you have trauma to the skull, um, you're losing blood somewhere, or you've been diagnosed with a major cancer, uh, things like that, which are life-threatening emergencies that where they have to focus on the, the big detail and big picture, making sure to save life. Um, Parkinson's is a chronic disease. It's a uh, lifelong disease. It is an important condition that everybody needs to keep in mind. But it's not something that becomes abruptly worse overnight because of some something. Of course, if you stop your medicines, you will be worse symptomatically. But it's just a matter of reintroducing the medicine. So if you have to be off medicine for, um, let's say, two days or three days because you couldn't be taking medicine by mouth, so long as the doctors are maintaining your blood pressure, heart rate, and giving you fluids and giving you good supportive care, it should be okay. The risk of you developing major complications is very low. And then as long as, long as you're um, able to take your medicine um, as quickly as you're allowed to take medicine by mouth, then it shouldn't be a big deal. Um, in other words, if you're monitored carefully and the medicine is reintroduced, 
as quickly as possible, then you should have a safe hospitalization. Now, having said that, um, if you are in a very um, isolated area of the country where the doctors are not familiar with Parkinson's disease and there are very few neurologists practicing and the family doctors and the emergency room doctors have never seen uh, Parkinson patients getting admitted for whatever, then it may be important to at least mention, hey, by the way, I have Parkinson's and these are some of the issues. And I think the kit that uh, we talked about last time from Parkinson's Disease Foundation may, may be a good idea just to you know kind of uh, show it. If somebody says, hey, by the way, there are some concerns about Parkinson's, then what should I know? What shouldn't I know? And I think having that kind of a kit um, handily available may not be a bad idea. Although I, I would caution that in a dire emergency, obviously you don't want to be, you know, interfering with the care of your loved one uh, when they're trying to save the life, you know, doing something very emergently. Right, I, hope not, I hope I answered that question. Right, well, and you're not going to force the medical staff to read the 23-page booklet. Correct. To make not, sure that they know everything. Right, exactly, at that point. No, right. but later on, if they're a little stabilized, you know, if there's later patient is doing better and looking good, then that may be a good time to say, hey, by the way, I have this kit. Just want to make sure you're right. all doing these things. Yeah. Right. Now, one specific thing I just want to bring up is when you have a, the medication ordered from the doctor, and the doctor writes four times a day. For Parkinson's medicine, they should write six, ten. They should write four, the times down. Correct. And, and now, even though they do the times, a lot of people don't know unless they're familiar with hospitals there's a window of administration of one hour on either side. So if a drug is supposed to be given at six o'clock, you can give that at five o'clock or seven o'clock to seven o'clock, that two hour window without being an error. So, right. So it's, you have to, you have to just realize that. So if you notice some side effects, don't assume that just because the order said six o'clock, the nurse is giving it exactly at six o'clock. So it may be something that's causing problems that nobody's going to realize because they say we're giving the medicine on time. Right. But the nurse's time is an hour on either side. So basically you could have six hours between doses. Right. And that's so this is a, you bring up a very important point, uh, Warren. I think um, next week we'll talk about uh, how this is even more important in the chronic setting, but let's uh, address this in the acute setting. So if you have Parkinson's and you're admitted to the hospital for Parkinson-related problem, like, for example, you have a bad urinary tract infection and you suddenly start having hallucinations or you become more confused and you're admitted to the hospital. Well, in this scenario, it becomes really important that the medication is administered correctly because, first of all, the reason why you got admitted is because you became more confused and we know you became more confused because of urinary tract infection, so they're going to give you antibiotics, IV fluids, And hopefully that's going to clear you up very quickly. But on the other hand, if they don't give the medicine on time, so you're supposed to take medicine. Let's take the example that uh, Warren was saying. Let's say your schedule was 6 a.m., 10 a.m., 2 p.m., and 6 p.m. That was the schedule that you were supposed to be taking. And you were taking it like that before you ended up in the hospital. And as Warren correctly said, um, the nursing staff and the people who dispense medicine do have the flexibility of plus or minus one hour in most cases. 
Uh, and that's because each nurse or each person or nursing assistant who is dispensing the medicine, they are in charge of several rooms uh, in the hospital. Typically, up to 20 rooms is, um, is controlled by one person dispensing the medicine. So they may start in one end of the um, corridor, and by the time you, they get to you, it might be 45 minutes because you're not at the beginning of where they started dispensing the medicine. And they come to your room, it'll be 45 minutes later. So six becomes 6.45. Now that's a real problem for Parkinson's disease because uh, these medicines are very sensitive to timing. And if you are delayed by up to 45 minutes, then you would be slow and you would have bradykinesia, slowness of movement, your tremor might start showing up and you might be having more difficulty walking during that time. So... Uh, it's important that if you are being admitted to the hospital for a Parkinson's-related complication, like, for example, the urinary tract infection and you becoming confused, in that scenario, it may be important to go and talk with the nursing supervisor or to the nursing staff and say, hey, we have a special situation here. Our doctor says it's really important to take medicine on time. Can you consider starting in my loved one's room. So instead of them starting in room 101, they could start in your loved one's or the Parkinson patient's room, which might be room 21. And they start giving the medicine first there and then go to the other rooms. So it just means that the person has to walk a few hundred feet extra to go to the room where the Parkinson patient is located, give them the medicine first, and then go to the other rooms. Now this way you will always get the medicine on time. Now, having said that, again, uh, dispensing medicine four times a day, uh, typically the hospital has a uh, schedule of QID dosing timing and TID dosing timing. Uh, three times a day was four times a day dosing timing. It may not be exactly four hours apart. So this may also require some education to say carbidopa levodopa has a clinical half-life of four hours, so it needs to be given every four hours. Now, this is particularly important if your admission is related to Parkinson's and Parkinson's-related complications, like frequent falling, uh, you're, you're being admitted to make sure that there's nothing else going on, and you're being optimized for it, or you are looking to see whether you need to go to rehab for a few weeks to get strength back and become optimized. These are the situations in which medication dosing timing has to be very optimal even though it's just for a few days, they still need to give the medicine on time. Another little thing is that oftentimes an error happens when the medication that is being dispensed is accidentally switched to a different kind. Let me explain. Carbidopa levodopa comes in different formulations. One is called 25-100. Another one is called 25-250. The third one is called 50 slash 200. The fourth one is called 25 slash 100 CR. And uh, the, there's one more kind, which is called 10 slash 100. So all of these have the same name, carbidopa levodopa. And sometimes accidentally, either because the order was incorrectly put in or occasionally, I would say rarely, the pharmacy makes an error and they don't give the correct medicine then in the hospital, the patient ends up getting a different formulation, not the correct formulation they got at home. 
So this is something you need to keep in mind. And what I would recommend is the caregiver slash loved one actually physically take the pill that they're taking at home, which is typically yellow and brown. It's the 25 slash 100. They take it to the hospital and compare it to the medicine that they're actually being given and make sure it's the same kind. If it's a different color, it's a different shape, uh, it has a different number on the back, which says 25-100-CR or ER, then obviously it's not the same medicine. And we want to make sure that that the same medicine is given, or at least the doctor knows that it's not the same medicine that they're getting at home. This is particularly important in the acute setting because that minor change from ER to regular or regular to ER can have a drastic influence on the few days that you're in the hospital, even if it means like four or five days, that could be dramatically changed because of the change in the formulation. Right. And also, every, like Dr. Soup said, every drug tablet has a, um, a number on it. And if you go to drugs.com on the internet, you could type in that, that specific number and they'll tell you if it's the right drug or not. And it's, it's always a good idea to do that, even, even when you're home and you get it from the pharmacy. Right. Great idea. Okay. So uh, that, that basically what we're trying to say is in a hospital setting, you don't have to worry that much because most people are in there less than a week. And, and the nurses and the doctors know what they're doing. They're up to date. But, when, but next week, we're going to talk about the long-term care setting. And that's something that stretches out over months or years. And that, that's much more dangerous to be off on the medication. So um, is, is that true, Dr. Sue? That's what we're going to talk about next right, week? Right, right. And, and we're going to talk about many other uh, long-term uh, issues, including medicines that interfere with Parkinson's. Uh, for example, medicines that we take for stomach reasons, like a medicine called metroplopramide or Reglan, that might be started and continued for many days. Uh, there could be other medicines that are, that are interactions that happen over long periods of time. So there are many things that we need to talk about in the long care, long-term long care setting, uh, whether it's a nursing home or assisted living. We'll touch upon that next week. But today we wanted to just summarize some of the acute um, hospitalization, major hospitalization-related uh, issues that Parkinson patients need to remember. Um, as Warren correctly said, uh, most doctors are astute about this. However, it's important that uh, consumers, patients, the caregiver also be aware of it. So in the situation where the doctors are not aware, you can bring it up, um, especially when the acute crisis is over. Acute, uh, the first few hours you're in the hospital when things are being hurriedly taken care of, that's over and the patient is stabilized. You may want to bring up these things and just say, hey, by the way, just want to make sure you are aware of these things. Right, and the worst case scenario is somebody in a long-term care facility that spends a year not feeling right because of somebody didn't monitor the right, didn't have the right mix of medications. All right. We'll address that next week in a right. full detail program. Yeah. Good. Well, thanks, Dr. Sue. Thank you. Bye. Bye.